Welcome to season eight of the Life Giver Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a military spouse, clinician, and leadership coach. And Life Giver is where I get to spark honest conversations, interview experts, and encourage you with topics on military culture, marriage, and leadership. So give yourself permission to pause and lean in. There's something for everyone here. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is Corey Weathers. In the last episode, I talked about the importance of incorporating hard things in your life, trying something new, maybe getting back to a hobby that you let go of a long time ago, whatever it is. But really, it's it's the idea of trying something that's difficult, bringing some joy into your life that takes time, that takes effort, and also forces you to practice setting aside the time in your life to actually do something um, to help you grow. And so much of our lives end up becoming filled with parenting and jobs and striving and um, whatever it is that we forget to have fun, we forget to invest in ourselves. And some of you out there um, don't even know where you would start. And if that's you, then it's a really good topic for you to start thinking about. But sometimes hard things are brought into our life that are not of our choosing. And it is a season of suffering or a season of difficulty. And it may be a never ending season. There are so many people that are struggling with a medical diagnosis or are an EFNP family where you have a child. Um, Some of you maybe even have a child that you will be taking care of for the rest of your life. And so there will be hard things that come into our life that are not necessarily at first glance something that brings you joy. And yet when we walk through it, and going back to Angela Duckworth's definition, when we walk through it and choose to lean into it and grow from it and allow it to stretch us, there is joy that can come from it. So today's interview is with the Hardings. And I'm going to ask you to listen to this interview, regardless of if you have a child with a medical condition, um, maybe the circumstances of this couple don't exactly fit your circumstances. And yet we can learn so much from someone else's story. And you never know when you're going to come across someone else that has a similar experience. And because of listening to this interview, your compassion has grown and your ability to listen and lean into someone else's story. But I just know that you're going to hear um, encouragement. You're going to hear ways that you can also grow and be inspired by listening to their story. I knew it was important to get it out there. I know um, the Army's quality of life is expanding to EFMP issues here in the fall. And so um, if you do have a family member that is struggling with a medical diagnosis or if you have a neurodiverse child, this is an incredible interview worth listening to for sure. And then I have a bonus um, interview coming out in the next couple days with my friend Amber Mattingly um, that I think will also kind of help us expand this conversation even more. So be on the lookout for that. But for now, here's my interview with the Hardings. Um, I'm thrilled to share an interview today with Monica and Aaron Harding. Aaron and Monica have an enriching story about going through some very difficult things, especially as it relates to their son. And I know that so many of you listening um, have gone through not only the stressors of being a military couple, but also trying to endure this lifestyle while also navigating medical issues. So those of you who are listening that maybe don't have some of those struggles of medical issues, I hope that you will still listen in to this story because I think that all of us, you know, nothing is promised in life when it comes to a smooth ride or easygoing. Um, We're not promised perfection. And so I really think this has more to do with how do we um, take care of ourselves? How do we take care of our family as we endure suffering, as we endure hardship? And all of us will go through that at some point. And so I hope you will listen in because I think there's going to be a lot that we can pull from Monica and Aaron as they share. 
just their particular story and how they've endured it to this point. So Aaron and Monica, I'm just going to come to you guys. Thank you guys for being willing to come on the podcast and share your story um, with other people. So welcome. Thank you, Corey. We're happy to be here and thank you for the opportunity to share our story. Yeah. So Aaron, why don't you start? I should have gone to Monica, but I'm going to give Monica plenty of opportunities here. Um, as a, from spouse to spouse, we know that we can answer these questions as well, but I think just to start, Aaron, do you want to share a little bit of your background in the service? Um, Mm -hmm. share what branch you're part of, how long you've been in, what you did. Um, I think you had a really unique MOS as well. And so maybe just share a little bit of that and where you guys are today, Monica, you can definitely fill in and just kind of share what it's been like for you guys in the last few years. Yeah. So I started off my uh, military career back in the or early mid eighties, um, as a uh, Navy corpsman, um, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. Um, so I served four years, uh, did a deployment and then, uh, knew that I wanted to go get my education. So, um, I got out, um, went, returned home, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, where I grew up and got my education from Arizona state. And in that time I stayed in the reserves and then, uh, Returned to Navy service uh, as a laboratory officer, um, serving uh, with the Medical Service Corps, and eventually getting my master's in uh, transfusion medicine, blood banking, uh, where um, I served with the Armed Services Blood Program. Uh, deployed a couple of, uh, a couple of times um, out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and um, was uh, responsible at the CENTCOM headquarters level. Uh, managing um, the blood assets for uh, Central Command across Afghanistan and Iraq, and then uh, and then I and, uh, retired at the end of 2012 after 28 years of uh, active duty and um, reserve service. I was about to say, did I hear you say you were active duty, then reserve, and then you came back in active duty? Yes, that because we had just gotten married in 1996. Um, in May of 1996. So um, in June is when I went, uh, June, July is when I went. And uh, so that was sort of her real first, um, you know, feel of the military presence. And then when I returned, I, I found out I, I got my commission and then we ended up, uh, you know, going to training and then ended up in Yokosuka, Japan. So she quickly, after being married, ended up, you know, um, moving away from home and her mom and all of that she's ever known growing up in Arizona. And so that really was, I think, importantly foundational for us because it really relied on, it uh, required us to really rely on one another. Um, fortunately, I'd been in Japan on a, my previous deployment. And so I was very familiar with the culture and the, the community, which was fantastic. And I loved being in Yokosuka, Japan, in that area, the community, the people. And so, again, that really relied on us. And so the first year of our marriage, we were probably separated, you know, more than half of our first our first year. But that gave us the opportunity to really connect and work on our relationship. Well, and I think some people are listening right now and they're going, what is retirement like? How are you guys feeling after 28 years of service and now that you're into retirement? I have to say that it was um, quite I, I had anxiety thinking about it only because the military was all I knew. And I had, um, you know, we had moved to how many different duty stations, five or six, Mm -hmm. seven. Mm -hmm. I don't even know anymore. Um, but we just, um, I thought, what's this going to be like? Um, and how are we going to take care of Jackson? Because, um, you know, we have three children. Um, um, our first daughter is almost, or, almost 25. And then um, our middle daughter is um, just turned 22. And then we have Jackson and Jackson was our, our, our main concern. The, the girls were, they had moved several times. So had Jackson, but it was what's going to happen with Jackson and where, where is he? We knew that he was going to require, um, you know, 24 hour care um, based on just, just how he was growing up with, um, his struggles, and um, we knew that we had to find a location, a state that was going to best fit his needs. Um, and you know, after 
the various states we had lived in, we knew San Diego was going to be the best for him um, as far as growing into adulthood. And um, that's when we relocated to San Diego um, from um, the Virginia area. Yeah. I mean, I think when, when um, service members are going to retire, I think for me, my observation would be that, you know, you can relocate to where you have family, friends, community, um, or a job, right? And, you know, that that can mean at first you can start off like you have 50 states to, or if you overseas, you know, if you're looking at federal or whatever. I mean, so I think, you know, families really trying to figure out where that, uh, where they want to go, what's important in that family's life. You know, we could have easily stayed in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, right? I mean, there's a ton of opportunities that would have been there, but that really wasn't our community. Um, so community was more important for us. Uh, you know, being from Phoenix, uh, San Diego, we had really built a lot of our community, having been stationed here a number of times. So we really found ourselves um, in, you know, San Diego being home and, uh, and we were able to find a, a job and kind of live out, as, as Monica said, uh, services within California um, and knowing them was really important. Well, and how long have you been retired? So I've been retired 10 years now. Yeah, 10 years. It's crazy to think about. So, and I think you bring up a really good point. Like you're saying, so many people often have the the opportunity to decide where they're going to retire based off of family or, you know, whatever state they want to go to. And here you clearly had this other variable of making sure that you had adequate medical care and what would be a good place for Jackson to go. So why don't we um, talk a little bit more about Jackson, about the story that you guys have and how that unfolded. Um, so you have four children. Jackson is your third. Is that correct? Three children. You have three, three children. children. Sorry. You have three children. Jackson is your third and he is currently 17. Is that right? Correct. So why don't you share a little bit, because um, he has a very rare disorder. So, um, and I was reading through some of the symptoms that he has and, and, you know, I would not want anybody to be frightened by some of the symptoms that can be so common is what I thought of. Like we just hear a lot of these symptoms frequently, but this was a very rare disorder for him. So share with everyone a little bit about where the symptoms first started coming up and Jackson getting the diagnosis and just kind of walk us through what that was like for you guys. Yeah. So um, Jackson being our third, um, you know, having had two healthy children, um, our daughters. And so when Jackson was born, he was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck three times. And so I was in the delivery room and I remember vividly the midwife and I just, you know, reacting very quickly to what we, she was observing what we were both observing. Um, Jackson was, you know, she reacted very quickly, called in additional team members. Um, when Jackson uh, finally was able, you know, was burned, you know, they, they took Jackson. And I, I recall that he didn't kink up as quickly as, you know, the girls had previously. And so I, I could see them, you know, stimulating him on his chest and, you know, oxygen blow by. And um, it, it seemed like forever, but uh, eventually, you know, he did start breathing. But I think uh, that that in the back of our mind, as, you know, fast forward nine months later, when we start observing developmental delays, we kind of wondered, you know, what maybe the impact was. Because his um, APGAR scores, those scores that they assess the baby for, um, you know, basic life function, right, were, were all within normal limits. And, and so but it made us really wonder what happened. And so then um, nine months, we started developmental delays. So we immediately, uh, we go into, you know, therapy, physical therapy or, um, to help him walk. And he ends up in orthotics. But. Around this time, so that was in 2000, he was born in 2005, um, and then I actually, he wasn't walking, he didn't walk till almost two, and that was a time where I was getting prepared to deploy uh, mm. for, my, for my first my first time um, uh, in 2007, and I was going to be gone almost a, a year, and so here I was leaving Monica, you know, um, 
And then we then we uh, relocated, um, returned from the plant, relocated to San Diego, and a year later I deployed again um, for another year. And right before that time period is when seizures started. So we started seeing uh, drop seizures, oxygen seizures, and again, this is all happening uh, on top of uh, autism diagnosis, and um, and we enter uh, again. I'm ready, getting ready to deploy. I recall back looking at some of his medical records where, you know, there's the possibilities of having a genetic disorder. And eventually in 2010, um, we ended up with uh, getting genetic testing and we ended up with a diagnosis of a, a de novo random a gene called Syngap1. And so he was uh, uh, diagnosed with uh, Syngap1 uh, Syngap intellectual disability. Yeah, and we did serve, you know, strange, um, like, he didn't cry a whole lot, uh, you know, but we didn't think much of it, you know, when we were driving, um, you know, cross country at one time. But, uh, but again, it wasn't until we had yeah, that nine-month baby well check where it came, we realized he wasn't meeting his milestones. And we were lucky being in the medical field, you know, lucky we have relationships with the clinicians. Um, and they uh, were very, I would say, proactive in uh, having him evaluated for developmental delays. Well, and Jackson is 17 now. And so he's had this diagnosis for a while. And so, Monica, share, um, share what it's been like for you guys over the last, especially 10 years, right? These last 10 years of knowing about this diagnosis, um, when I was reading over the symptoms, the the seizures, you know, sounds significant. What was the, what was the hardest part for you guys? I mean, I would think as a parent, like I remember my son is EFMP, not anywhere close to what you guys are going through, but I know for most parents, when you are going through this process of trying to figure out like, what is going on with my child? And I know combined with a lot of moving and every doctor having a different perspective on what might be going on. I know it was an incredibly stressful season for us just trying to figure out and nail down what was actually going on and getting a diagnosis and then trying to get some kind of treatment. And so I hear your story and I have my own like adrenal, you know, reaction, you know, of what it was like for us to go through that. So what was it like for you guys, um, going through, when he's having these symptoms, trying to figure out what is the actual diagnosis and then dealing with the lifestyle and the stress of the lifestyle on top of having now a special needs child. So honestly, when Jackson got diagnosed with Syngap-1, um, it was a sense of relief for myself. He was, he was an older child at my, you know, sounds weird, but 10. Um, but I had gone through so many years with him of nonstop therapy, what um nonstop dietary changes, supplements, yeah. medications, whatever you want to call it, since he was, you know, before he was a year old. So from for myself, we it, yeah, it was it was a relief that we finally figured out what was happening. And um we were able to put our finger on an actual diagnosis. Um it, it didn't, it didn't take me back. I wasn't scared. I wasn't, um, shocked. I was, I was relieved. Mm -hmm. Um, and also there was a peace. Um, I was at peace knowing that I had done everything I could as, a, as a mom, as a single parent for many of the times. Um, I had done everything I could to, could do at this point knowing that I had done all the therapies, all the different medications, appointments. Um, I could finally be at peace knowing, okay, we, we can put our finger, our finger on it. There's nothing I could have done differently mm -hmm. um, because I struggled with, with that, knowing that um, I was by myself for a lot of it. And I had to, um, I had to be strong for the entire family. I also had to be um, especially strong for Jackson, knowing that, I was doing everything for him and yes, dad was around, but dad, dad was serving our country and, um, dad needed to be at peace with, um, leaving the house and knowing that things were going to be taken care of at home. So, um, I was finally at peace knowing though, that I'd done everything I could and nothing would have changed had I added a different supplement or a different pill. Um, but that was part of the relief. 
it, it was, it was, yeah. it was a relief for myself. Um, and, and then once we started connecting, um, you know, I can remember it's like, okay, so what do we do now, Aaron? What, what do we do with this diagnosis and where do we go from here? Um, and knowing that it was so rare, um, and Jackson was like the 76th, um, patient at, at the time, um, and I thought, heck, you know, where, where do we go from here? And knowing that we had done, I, we had done everything we could have and knowing that we were in a good spot, San Diego with, um, our regional center and the fact that, um, Navy medicine could continue to follow him was such a relief because we were always going back and forth, back and forth from East coast, West coast, East coast, West coast. And there was never, um, the continuity of care was amazing. The, the doctors and the therapists, I had obviously mastered going back and forth, back and forth. Um, but um, we we were able to return to the same doctors. Um, and But we were able to finally say, this is what it is. It's, it's in gap one. And now where do we go from here? Not that they had any answers. Yeah. But yeah, Monica, Monica has always been, you know, again, as parents, you have to be the best advocate for your child. And, and that's even probably intensified, you know, a hundredfold when you have a child with special needs. And I mean, the military does does um, provide the uh, community infrastructure for supporting families. Um, I think we've found that, you know, through the EFMP program, which all of the services are different, you know, on how they execute the EFMP program, you know, how a service member, where they're stationed, um, in the limitations that that, uh, or yeah, the limitations that that potentially could, you know, or impact that that could have on the family, right? So the family member may have to get stationed in a major uh, location, but that also might mean that the service member for career progression may have to do unaccompanied, you know, deployment. So there is a whole different environment that service member families have to, you know, have to. Um, have the, the challenges that they have to deal with when it comes to um, providing for that child. You know, again, our children were younger, you know, the girls were younger, right? And here, mm-hmm. uh, Monica was caring for a special needs child with, you know, two young daughters. And so, but she's always been the best advocate. And that's true within the healthcare part of it, but also, you know, at three, when we started entering the educational uh, setting, that's another huge yeah. area where parents you begin to learn <laughs> about um the complexities of life or the administrative mm-hmm. political aspects of life um when you have a special need child but you be you know you're you're your best child's advocate in all of the arenas of life to help them have the best possibilities well and i i do want to ask you some more questions about being an advocate because i think that there is always a little bit of angst and a lot of um, confusion, especially for those listening who are just now kind of um, starting in a place of trying to figure out how to be an advocate for their child or for their family. But before I get to that, um, Monica, I'd love to just kind of lean in towards you for just a second here. And um, what, first of all, what a gift for you to be able to be home and available and to do everything that you could do, to be able to look back and say that you did everything that you could, could do. Like that's a, such a gift that I don't think everybody gets to be able to say that or gets the opportunity to do as much as you felt like you're able to do. So first of all, what a gift that was. But um, I think military spouses often... I think we give ourselves like it's, there's no, no other choice, but to be that rock, right? Like you just know you have to dig deep and find it somewhere and figure out how to be that rock for everyone. And I I really want to just give you a second to share in a little bit more of a vulnerable way. Yes, you were successfully that person, but I would love for you to encourage someone out there who is also doing a great job of that, but the cost that it, that comes from that as well. Like, Surely there was moments where you were burned out. Surely there were moments where it was really difficult. I don't think any of us navigate any of these obstacles and not be unscathed from it. And while we can come out of it and go, I just had to do it. 
right? Like I know that that cost something from you and was, was difficult. So do you mind me leaning in just a little bit and letting you share the struggle of that? Um, sure. It, you know, Jackson having special needs was all I knew. Um, we knew early on that, that there was something going on. Um, and I, Aaron, with Aaron coming and going, I, yes, I did carry the load. Um, I also had to rely on, um, I had to let my guard down, um, and lean on the people around me. Um, and that, that was hard to do. Um, and I later learned how to do that more often than not. Um, but you know, I was surrounded by Marine wives and, um, that, that in itself was very difficult because I saw how they carried themselves and I knew I had to be almost as strong as them, if not stronger with my husband being in the medical field. Um, but you know, I, I tried to carry a lot of the weight and, um, it, it was, it was tough and it ate me up inside to the point where, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, but I seriously had some depression going with, um, my husband being gone and not knowing how he was going to do. Meanwhile, I've got three children, very young. Um, and Jackson, my goal was to get him caught up by the time Aaron came home. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's my mission. He's going to be walking, talking, mm-hmm. everything's going to be back to normal. Um, but you know, as things were unraveling, I, I, I leaned heavily on to, into those, uh, groups as strong as those women were. Um, and, you know, became emotional with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I have to say that, um, I had to carrying the load for so long, um, taught me to be very thick, thick skinned and, um, carry enormous amount of weight. Um, but I didn't need to be that way. Um, now that I have figured this out now that Jackson's almost going to be 18, almost an adult. Um, but I, um, I have to say that I wish I would have learned that earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, through, through, I have to say through some therapy, um, talk therapy, um, and letting my guard down and be more vulnerable with people, um, that, that has really, um, allowed people to see really our, our struggles day in and day out. Um, I was really great at, at, putting on this, um, strong front that I I do have everything under control. Um, and I really thought I did, but I didn't realize emotionally how traumatizing that was for myself, um, and how unhealthy it was. Um, and I have to say that fast forward, I, I didn't realize how it really put a, um, a false perceptive or percep perception for our daughters. Mm. Um, they didn't realize how hard it was and, um, how we just, we just kept it together. Um, and that's, yeah, I think the emotional, what I observed in the emotional impact, and I'll be honest, it's, it's, it's easy. It can be easy not to see it. Um, if you're not really good at sharing it, um, and, and I, I can, there's times where I didn't see it. I could, I would hear about it. But we we often don't share it, um, and I think it's really important for families, whether you have a special needs child or not, because there's stressors in life all of the time with deployments and, and, and moving and disruptions that are happening. That um, as a active duty, as the spouse who comes and goes, um, that we can do better to have those conversations with our spouse and our spouse sharing more deeply about that. Jackson had a lot of aggression when he was very young, you know, where where medications would intensify some of that aggression um, to where Monica had a lot of scratch marks and bite marks. And and that's a challenge within our community um, as it is with a lot of uh, developmental disorders. But um, I've learned um, you know, how amazing Monica is in, in, in actually the journey 
of what she's been through in, in all of those 17 years. It wasn't until about two years ago that we finally realized that we needed therapy as a family. Our daughters needed it. Monica needed it. I, you know, I needed it. And I think it, it, that vulnerability of seeking help is, is, is so important for families. Um, again, based on the different stressors that are actually uh, happening. I, I'm so glad that you guys reached that point because what you went through was traumatic. Even if it was kind of broken apart in pieces over time, it really was a traumatic experience to go from, you know, when we have, and, you know, I think there's like big trauma, there's little trauma, you know, and, and I think that we forget sometimes that every time something doesn't go our way, and I don't mean like, Starbucks ran out of our coffee of choice. Like I'm not talking, (laughs) I'm talking about like wanting Jackson to reach that milestone and then realizing that he's not, and then realizing we have to adjust our perspective. Every time we go through one of those moments, it's another grieving process, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like a little, it's a little trauma. And so those kind of add up over time. And then you don't realize just how traumatizing and stressful it has been over time to have to grieve as much or having to muster up that level of grit to face whatever you need to face every day to face fears or to have courage to advocate or whatever it is that you have to do. And that takes so much energy. When I was saying earlier that I could feel the adrenaline firing off in my body, like there are these adrenaline spikes that you go through where you're constantly like on alert all the time. And that can take a toll on your body too. So when you talk about like a decade or more of going through all of this, your family has definitely been through so much. And I also want to um, point out that Monica, when you're talking about leaning into the community around you, a couple things came to mind. First of all, um, on one hand, it's kind of like a pro and a con, like on one hand, our community Um, has, especially the spouse community of all branches, especially during the 90s and 2000s, before social media basically came on the scene, um, there was unfortunately a lot of um, a culture of of guardedness and just like vulnerability was difficult at times because we all were kind of mustering up whatever we needed to from a, from a sense of grit. Right. And it was like, we all have to endure this. We all need to figure out how to not be needing everybody for everything. Like how do we be independent and take care of what's happening in our homes? And then when you really do need that help, who do you reach out to? And so on one hand, there was kind of these messages, these subtle messages that were passed, I think around in our community and still a little bit today, about like, you just figured out and you just kind of like what you first said, like, you know what, he's serving his country. And so we just need to, you know, take care of the home front, you know? But the other thing I love about our community is that, man, when you really need help and you really have to like bring your guard down and be vulnerable and say, I need support. Like I need someone, whether it's, I need someone to just run to the store and get me something from the grocery store, or I really just need an hour. Like, or can I just have somebody to listen to me? What I love about this community is they've always shown up. Like they, like when you really ask, they show up because we know we, we know it's hard deep down inside. We know this is really hard. Whatever is happening in everybody's homes is hard. And so on some level, we're going to need help at some point. And I wanted to stress that because I think that there is a lot of shifts happening within our culture today where, um, where it feels like the community is broken down a little bit and they're less connected than they've ever been. And yet your story is, is timeless in that but I hear the the real message behind what you just said is that we need community. We can't do it by ourselves. Vulnerability is not only important in marriage, not only important in parenting, but we've got to come outside of our homes and at least talk about what's going on, ask for help when you need it. And that people are always, you know, I really think people are doing the best that they can. And if they know that somebody needs something most times they're going to help if they can. And so we actually get better when we ask for help and break down just a little bit and lean on community. None of us were meant to do this by ourselves. And I see you guys shaking your head in agreement. Um, If it's okay, I would love to ask you about this advocacy piece because there are so many people going through their level of 
raising kids right now, maybe it's for their own health, but even more for it, for their kids who are trying to figure out how do I advocate for my family and for my kids. And I remember having this feeling of trying to figure out like, how hard do I push versus how hard do I just like, or how much do I lean back and just trust what someone else is saying? You talked about the education system. You know, there's like, so like, I feel like as a parent in this situation, half the time you're like storming the castle because you're out of desperate need for answers and help and support. And then half the time you're like trying to trust what everybody has going in the system in place. So what would you encourage someone else listening? I see Monica shaking her head. What would you guys um, encourage someone else right now as they're trying to navigate? Like, how do I know which one to do? Do I trust or do I storm? Which one? Uh, I think that um, interestingly enough, Aaron and I are, are, our personalities are very different. And um, I'm the one that's storming the schools, the teachers, and challenging. Um, and I've learned that that's not always great. Mm. Um, not that I have burned any bridges or anything. Um, and this how, is where- how can I ask, how did you realize that that was not the best strategy? Uh, just early on that I, I knew that um, I couldn't become, I had to be very careful, especially with the school system. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not my friend. Um, they were there to educate Jackson and we really had to learn, um, learn the laws about special education. Um, and thankfully, you know, we have faith that's across the United States. Um, so it's not particular to only California, but learning the law and what our children are, um, uh, not entitled to or not what we believe would be the best education, but, what is fair and appropriate and that and what we see what how we view it and how um the school views it is very different um and you know jackson is on the extreme side um so yes that did help us get the proper education but we had to fight early on um because jackson wasn't displaying um you know he was you know, when he entered the system, he was three years old. Um, and yes, he had some aggression at that age, but it's, you know, it's obviously um, progressed as he's gotten older and so have his needs. Um, but we had to learn to um, really, really be careful how we advocated in the right way. Um, and that's where I had Aaron really telling me, and, and this is most recently, um, you know, I, I had to be careful and not and not really um, piss people off mm-hmm. in, in my emails. And I had to be much more um, I had to be less direct. <laughs> um, and that's this is where Aaron and I were able to balance um, and where our relationship really um, came together mm-hmm. advocating for Jackson. It was both of us. We've always we've had always had a very open relationship. And um, I just knew that. Aaron, you know, Aaron is is the person that's used to going to into wartime, and he's got that calmness, that sense that um, I don't want to say where he lacks the emotion, but um, we just we just come at it very differently, right? Whereas the mom, we're the I don't want to say we're the the lion or the bear or whatever you want to call it, but th- these are our children, these are our babies, and mm-hmm. we're gonna um, advocate to the moon um, as much as we need to, and back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, therapy didn't help us. Um, we just had to we learn, kind of learn the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um, he needed to kind of um, push a little bit more and I had to push less. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really how we made success with um, Jackson's educational setting. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the analytical one. So I'm the scientist. Yeah. Analytical one. So when you go in, when we would go into an IEP meeting, it's about facts, right? It's about facts, right? It's about, you know, the um, individual educational plan, the IEP meeting. Are they executing it? Uh, are they, is the documentation happening? Are they, are they doing, you know, their job appropriately? And we did go through a period where uh, we went through three separate meetings, a total of six hours of IEP meeting and helping to understand 
um, the, your, you know, your safeguards and understanding, um, which they give you here, what your uh, educational safeguards are for the meeting, but then understanding the, the special education law, I think was very helpful in how we advocated for, for Jackson, um, and it was done appropriately. And, and so I think you, you, you as a special needs parent never stop learning. You, you end up being a jack of all trades and you have to, you, you find community with, uh, within, um, and surround yourself with people that are going to help you to be successful because nobody gives you the answers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, getting services through the, the county, through the regional centers. Nobody tells you, there's no playbook. You talk to people, you, you have to figure it out um, through that, through community. And so... Um, it's it's truly all about networking. Networking yeah. for special needs parents, whether it be moms and dads. I can tell you the, the vast majority of our services, I've learned through other parents. Um, and it's... Yeah, you know, they're sitting in those waiting rooms. Um, I always thought, I always thought, okay, this would be an, an amazing money making um, situation for therapists. You've got your OT, SLP, PT for the kids. Okay, well, what's happening to these parents? Yes, <laughs> they're here in the waiting room. Um, much of them are single parents because dad was dad or mom were deployed. Okay, what are we doing? We're talking amongst ourselves. Yeah, we're learning ups and downs or whatever, but there comes a point where our, at that time, I always thought this would be ideal for the moms to check out and go talk to have their talk therapy, right? Um, instead of complaining to each other, because that becomes very heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, but back to, um, learning our, um, you know, how to navigate and advocate. Um, it, it is going to that person knowing, okay, she just dealt with this. We, what more can we do? What more can we gather? And it, it's tenacious and it's exhausting. Yeah. Moving and collecting material and documenting and writing emails. And it doesn't, you can't skip a beat um, and follow up, constant follow up. Um, but, and this is where I had, you know, Aaron, the, where we would able to, we were able to balance off each other and say, okay, this is what needs to get done. And, and, um, but it, it was exhausting, but we had to do it. We had to do it for Jackson to be in the best place. Yeah. What we did learn was once we got the diagnosis for the SYNGAP1 gene mutation, um, and that explained everything. So we, that actually helped us, gave us a sense of relief, like Monica said, but it helped us to enter into a community like Monica said, we were like the 76th patient diagnosed, but what it did was it, I immediately Googled it. I talked to my friends who were geneticists and, and we got tested. So we knew this was a, a de novo new random mutation. Um, so immediately Googled and again, immediately started getting connected with other people and other families and Monica started entering into that. And so we started you know, expanding our community within the rare disease space within Syngap, um in 2006 um, and 2000, yeah, 2016. And then um, we eventually uh, got very active, have been very active in advocating for uh, special needs community ever since he was diagnosed. And then in uh, 2000. 18, we uh, we joined forces with the Syngap Research Fund, which um, a family who was diagnosed uh, wanted to start an organization. So we became very have been very active with that organization. And Syngap Research Fund has been very much about educating, creating content to be able to help families navigate through what we're talking about today is we're all across the country. We've got a little over 1200 patients worldwide, mm. worldwide. And we're connected with patients across the world. I mean, we talk to people in India, Australia, in Europe all of the time. Um, and we're all dealing with the challenges of life in very different cultures. Right. And, mm. and so, you know, from, you know, retiring from a, a culture, 
you know, then we, we've entered into this special needs culture and community where we're helping one another, but we're also collaborating and working with other rare diseases that deal with uh, very, very similar uh, challenges daily. Well, and, you know, there's lots of research that shows that marriages or parents that have a child with um, autism or that is on the spectrum, just even that one diagnosis is more likely to get divorced because of the stressors associated with it. And so share with everyone how you guys have stayed connected, how you've handled the stress as a couple, um, because there are some, there's a couple listening right now that isn't maybe necessarily dealing with the level of struggle that you guys have dealt with, but they're struggling in their marriage because of the stress of it. So could you vision cast for them? Like what is, um, you've talked about getting therapy. You've talked about being collaborative in your perspectives of how to approach a situation. Like how do we lean on each other, balance each other out? But, um, how has that been for you guys as a couple to be able to still be together today? Now Jackson is approaching adulthood and that comes with a whole bunch of other decisions and things that probably to grieve through too. But share a little bit about your marriage and how you've been able to stay strong and stay connected. Um, or not. I, like, it's okay if there have been rough points too, right? Absolutely. Um, I have to say that it, it started early on in our relationship when we left the country um, as newlyweds. And we had, we had only ourselves to rely on mm-hmm. um, and to learn. And... You know, really know outside um, individuals that were, um, you know, not butting in. But um, so it was it was the foundation of of learning um, as a young couple and young parents, I want to say, that really solidified our marriage and to to depend on each other. Um, It's, you know, there's. We've had to learn how to communicate um, in different ways um, as far as um, me being very emotional um, and him becoming more emotional and entering my space um, and letting that that mm-hmm. guard down. And, and also for myself, letting my guard down, mm-hmm. um, not just just being used to carrying everything. OK, I, I'm I'm tired. I'm emotionally and physically drained um, and asking for help because oftentimes if you don't tell your, your partner, you need help, they think you're doing amazing and yeah. you're, you're just so strong and kudos to you. But um, it's, it's with, with SYNGAP, especially SYNGAP, you're, you're trying to deal with whether it be behaviors, whether it be with side effects from medication or seizures or, um, being physically drained from your child, not being able to walk appropriately. So there's, you're, you're being pulled in so many directions and until you're able to communicate that, um, and have a spouse that is willing to listen and step up, you've got to have that obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's communicating and, um, even if we're relearning how to communicate Mm -hmm. in a, in a more effective way, um, and I, I do have to say that therapy has helped us, um, you know, living through COVID and being trapped indoors, um, especially here in California, the whole family realizing that um, our communication is very ineffective. Um, we had to relearn, relearn how to communicate, even with our adult children and having that openness, though. And, you know, hopefully you have that partner that is receptive um, because I know there's there's so many families that, that don't have that open, open communication and can't lean on their spouse. Um, I, I'm super fortunate that Aaron has always been receptive to me and, and to my needs. And has always said, what, what can I do for you? How can I help you in that way? And, and yes, I, I, I definitely share more of, oh, you really want to know how you can? Okay. This is how, um, and, and making, and, Knowing that he is going to try to do whatever I ask, or it, I, he can't solve everything. Um, and you know, knowing that that's the scientist in him to to help. Um, you know, I'm going to put it in here um, to solve to solve my concerns. No, I just need to dump on you. And yeah. and this is where this is where 
you need your community, your special needs community. This is where I need my syngap moms that I have that I'm able to say, this is how I feel. And um, uh, will you share this with me? And knowing that, yeah, they're, they're going to listen. They're not going to have the solutions. Yeah. Um, maybe they've never even walked that journey or experienced that yet. But knowing that I can dump on them and um, that they're going to open their arms and have that um, that virtual hug for me. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, we're, I mean, I, I think our, our, our faith uh, is very important to us. Absolutely. I think, you know, that gives us a foundation of of forgiveness and a foundation of of patience, uh, a foundation of, of deep of love that um, you know supersedes all of the challenges. Doesn't mean it's not difficult, and there's not you know difficult you know there's not challenges. There definitely are, but it mean it's allowed me to kind of step back. You know, I I, I leave to go to work, and Monica's at home. Um, well, it's not like she's just at home, you know, taking naps and watching you know, TV all day, right? I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into that you, know, you realize into making appointments and following up on referrals and, you know, dealing with. And I don't know how single families with special right. needs, um, you know, it's a, there's a special there's a special place for families, you know, where there's single parents and they're dealing with that. We know a number of them because it's it's not easy. I think as a husband, I really, um, when I walk in the door, my goal is, you know, what can I do to relieve Monica of, of Jackson? Because she's been with him all day or she's just gotten back with therapy so that, you know, she can continue with making dinner or doing whatever. So that's, you know, and that's how I've always kind of approached it to, to kind of pick up and, and give her relief. But I do think the challenges to divorce, right, is, you know, are like I think for families where you're, you're, if you don't see what's happening or you choose not to see what's happening um, in the dynamics of that the child changes the dynamics of the family tremendously. So your you as the husband and maybe and the wife, I mean, your needs are not primary. <laughs> you know, when you get married, your your needs are supporting one another and and you kind of give up some of your needs and desires for your spouses. And with a special needs child, that just intensifies. It happens with children, but it intensifies with a child's special needs. And so those things that you would like, you know, where if you're getting enough sex or not, or you were getting enough of your just sleep. How about just regular sleep? sleep right? <laughs> or, or being met, then yeah. you have to really understand that um, you you have to change your perspective of where the focus is. But then you have to work together as a couple to find out how you do meet one another's needs, whether it's being intimate and going on a date night or still having a strong relationship because if you don't follow if you don't focus on the relationship and it's always yeah. about the child then the relationship will have a much higher degree of failure but you have to work on how do i how do i how am i willing to be vulnerable to let somebody help with the child or your children and that's important for fam- military families because we, we move into communities where we don't know anybody and we and you, you have to find that community and i think it's difficult it's difficult to ask but you have to do that and then allow have a priority where you as a couple, the church we went to, um, we would do several times a year, we would do military parent relief where the parents could drop off their kids and the parents could focus on the relationship or the parent, if their spouse is deployed, could, you know, do something that they need, they needed a break. And that provides an invaluable opportunity of, of helping military families. So I think communities could do that all across the country, but I think um, for one another too, um, to be able to uh, um, is make sure you also focus on your relationship and ask for help to, for that to happen. There are so many questions that I would want for you guys to continue to unpack. I mean, you've, you've just barely scratched the surface on what self-care looks like, right? Um, but what I am hearing you say is, um, I think 
you know, Monica, you said sleep, right? And so being able to identify yourself, your own personal wellness and what you need and being able to communicate that to your spouse. And like you said, Monica, if your spouse doesn't know, they don't, they don't know, right? They can't win if they don't know is what I always say. And our spouses, I find most of the time, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to get it right. I really don't think that spouses or couples are out there trying to mess up and trying to get it wrong. I think people want to genuinely win, but we sometimes need to give them the information they need to win. Mm -hmm. And so I know we barely scratched the surface on the importance of self-care, but I know you guys do a lot of advocacy and I know that you do a lot um, of education. Just in closing, um, is there anything else that you would want to encourage someone listening or make sure that they know about before we wrap up? Um, in short, plug into the community where you're at. Find uh, a community of support. Um, find those people where the relationships you can make um, flourish. Because people will say, what do you need help with? Um, I want to help you. And you may have a difficult situation. Um, your child's difficult. If they're not part of that, you know, say, if you'd love to help, you know, you can't help at 1 a.m. when things are going to hell in a handbasket and they're not sleeping for hours. But if you want to come over and I can get a nap in, that'd be great. So I think it's trying to build a community. And then I think find if you have a rare disease or there's uh, something else that you can connect with in a community that's even bigger and outside of the military, find that community within the rare diseases that can help uh, somebody that is dealing with what you're dealing with on a daily basis. That's on a military level. That's on a you know, a, a social level on a, you know, whether that's church or your synagogue or your you know, institutions, just find somewhere where you can get the spot and don't be afraid um, to get therapy and help. Mm. Uh, nowhere, where, nowhere, again, self-care, as we t- just touched on, is so very important to allow for relations, your relationship for self and those relationships around you to be healthy. I have to agree. I I want to emphasize, though, the connection within our rare community, those people that are really living in, living daily with your struggles um, and can relate. Those those people, they become your family. Um, Those are the people you want to do holidays with, go vacation with, because they get it. You don't have to explain what's happening or why it's meds time again. or It's just they understand. Um, and there's a, a, a deep, deep connection um, that you share with those people on your journey. Guys, I'm so grateful that you are sharing your story and being honest with where you are. Um, thank you for joining the podcast and, and making your story known. Um, I try to share regularly on the podcast that there's these different la- layers of healing. Um, and I really feel like when you get to a place where you're ready to share your story and inspire other people and trying to provide hope to other people, but that's like a whole other next level of healing your own story. And we don't all have to be there at that place right now. Sometimes you're just in a survival mode or a survival season. But I think the goal should be, how do I get to a place where at some point I'm able to share my story and encourage someone else who maybe is where I was at some other point. So thank you guys for being willing to do that, for doing the hard work in your relationship so that you could today be here to share that story. Thank you for working hard on your marriage. Thank you for working hard on your family and for investing in all of your kids enough that you would focus on having that intact family together. And um, I'm just really grateful that I met you and I'm really grateful that you're able to share your story. So thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Corey. One of my favorite things is talking to individuals and couples and not only hearing their story, but just really reflecting on everything that they've learned and seeing how much they've grown. And I am always inspired um, by hearing the growth of a couple that has learned to face difficult things, but also grow together to see each other more sincerely, to value each other in new ways because of the difficulty that they've gone through. And it doesn't mean that they're completely on the other side, but just hearing how the Hardings really chose to lean into their marriage and take care of their marriage, to go through such an incredible season of parenting their, their kids 
kids and trying to figure out, you know, what are the strengths of each other, but then realizing that they needed to value their relationship enough that it was also important to lean into that. There's just so much wisdom. So I hope this was an encouraging interview for you. It was for me. Um, and again, if this is not your circumstances, you are going to run into someone who has a similar story or traces of it. And you'll know when you come across that person. And my hope is that your heart um, has compassion and it really has stretched by hearing someone else's story. Thank you for listening and be on the lookout for a bonus interview coming up in the next couple days. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing guys. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast or leave a review so others can find it as well. Were you thinking of someone else who would benefit from hearing today's episode? You can be a life giver to them by simply sharing it with an encouraging note. If you would like to connect with me or find out more about my work, you can visit www.coryweathers.com.